Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 21 of Impact Boom. My name is Tom Allen. I'm the director of Seven Positive and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Aline Lauke. Aline has served as a freelance consultant for corporate responsibility, social enterprise and social financing for the last six years. And she's also recently completed her PhD in which she investigated strategic paradoxes in organizations that seek to provide essential goods and services to the base of the pyramid in a financially sustainable way. For her study, she's received a scholarship from Siemens Stiftung and traveled to Colombia, Mexico, Kenya and South Africa to interview and analyze social enterprises in the healthcare sector, as well as the broader ecosystems in which they operate. At Zeppelin University in Germany, she's taught classes on the topics of social enterprise, social innovation, social financing, and base of the pyramid strategies. Prior to this, Aline worked at the Grameen Creative Lab, as well as serving as a curator at the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers from 2014 to 2015. So on today's podcast, Aline will share her journey in both practice and academia, We'll get Aline's advice about getting projects funded alongside policy changes she believes would be beneficial for the social enterprise sector. And we'll hear some great insights and tips from Aline about social innovation and social financing. Aline, thanks very much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on Impact Boom. Aline, to start things off, could you please share a bit about your background and what led you down the path of social enterprise? Yeah, sure. So uh, my background, basically in um, international business and international relationships in, in easy words and yeah what I realized in my studies is that basically I was not so happy with just you know pursuing like simple for-profit goals and that I somehow needed a, a higher purpose yeah. and um, what I mean with that is a, somehow the possibility to create impact for other people and for the planet and mm. I came across the concept of CSR like corporate social responsibility during my studies and um, that was like I don't know 10 or 12 years ago so yeah. it was not that big at that time and I found it really interesting and got involved in, in this topic and got a job and I, I started with an internship and then got a job in that uh, area etc etc but then yeah. there was still this feeling that somehow I was only scratching at the surface mm. and I read a book written by Peace Nobel Prize laureate Muhammad Yunus about social business mm. and I was totally stoked I was like, wow, this is it. Like, this is the concept that this world needs. Yeah. And this is what I want to do. <laughs> Excellent. And um, then I heard about a small organization, which is called Grameen Creative Lab. So Grameen is the name of the bank that also provides microfinance in Bangladesh that has actually been uh, founded by Muhammad Yunus. Yep. 
And um, so he has an organization in Germany together with a, an entrepreneur, a German entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And what they did is basically, so it was kind of the, let's say the follow-up office of Muhammad Yunus. So you can imagine it like that. Uh, Muhammad Yunus travels around the world and he meets like thousands of people, like super influential people, mm -hmm. like national presidents, uh, prime ministers, or uh, CEOs of huge companies, yeah. or actors, etc., etc. Mm. And all these people were really interested in working with him because he had just, you know, gotten a Peace Nobel Prize, obviously. But then his concept was also somehow really attracting so many people because it brought together two things that hadn't been brought together before, like the social and, and the business yeah. part. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I got involved in this organization. I got a job there and that's how this uh, all started with social enterprise or social business in his words. And yeah, I keep doing that. Um, I mean, I'm not in, with Grameen anymore, yeah. but uh, I've been involved in that topic for many, many years now. Oh, fantastic. It's an interesting coincidence, Elaine, because I'm gonna actually going to see him next week, give a talk in my city in Brisbane. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, that's great. No, very much looking forward to that. So that's a great introduction, Elaine. So, I mean, recently you completed your PhD at Zeppelin University and it's a really interesting topic. So could you please share more about that research and your key findings and insights? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so when I was working at Grameen, I increasingly developed a desire to somehow dive deeper and really rack my brain about social enterprise because the topic was really new at that time and there was so much research to do around it so i was not so interested in doing the phd itself but like researching about yeah, it yeah. and uh, especially what my experience at Grameen had shown me was that social enterprises really always had to struggle with with conflicts like although it was so obvious for many people that these two things had to go together and that it was beneficial for all of us mm. um there were so many conflicts they had to deal with because it is so deeply institutionalized in our brains and in our societies that the social and, and the business part have to be somehow antagonistic. And so I was always interested in this topic and then I somehow came across, or basically a job somehow found me, let's say. Yeah. And it sounded really, really interesting. It was a research project funded by Siemens Stiftung and it was designed as a partnership together with five universities. So mm. one university in uh, Germany, which is University where I then uh, got enrolled yep. and for other universities in developing and emerging economies so mm. um, in Colombia in Mexico and Ethiopia and in South Africa wow. later we switched to Ke to Kenya then later on but that's a different topic yeah that was my second passion I mean I was always really interested in other cultures especially like cultures that are very different from the ones in, in, in Europe let's say or Western cultures and so this project sounded really interesting and uh, I applied for a job and was lucky enough to to get it and um, yeah and then I traveled to Colombia, Mexico, Kenya and South Africa to actually um, interview social enterprises and I chose a sector the healthcare sector mm. to have some you know isolated variable let's say yeah and uh, yeah looked at the conflicts and the paradoxes that they experienced and what type of strategies they applied to deal with those conflicts so on the one hand I had this comparison between countries but then what I also compared is um, the difference between for-profits and non-profits because I somehow had a feel feeling like also based on my experience that this made a major difference yeah. and this also brings me to my main finding let's say uh, which 
in a nutshell says that, yeah, there's a major difference between for-profits and non-profits with regards to the way that they experience conflicts and also with the way they're able to react to those conflicts. Mm. So do you, do you so, think it makes sense then to think in terms of these non-profit and for-profit categories when it comes to social enterprises? So, yeah, that's, the, that's a funny way to, to put the question. So um, does it make sense? Well, um, I think for many social enterprises it obviously doesn't make sense because they feel like they're both or they're none of the two. Yeah. But, um, I mean, they have to, because in most of the countries you don't have a legal form that somehow uh, combines the two, mm. so they just have to. Based on that, it obviously also makes sense to do it, um, because, yeah, as I've said, the choice of the legal form has really, really big implications, not only on the type of funding that you get, I mean, that's rather the obvious uh, thing, I would say, yeah. but also the, the way you can manage your legitimacy, that's mm. how, how I called it in my, um, in my work, in my yeah. study. Because you can, you can be a social enterprise as a non-profit and that would somehow sound logical for most of, of the people, of the stakeholders, let's say, because they think, okay, well, this organization has a social goal. Of course, it's a, it's a non-profit, right? Yeah. But then with this decision are a couple of expectations coming along, right? So. Yeah. All types of stakeholders, including external and internal, so even your employees, will expect you to operate in a certain way. And this means that as soon as you move a little bit more towards the market-oriented or the business-oriented operations or structures or whatever, you're, you will face like serious conflicts that can, that can really, really threaten your operations. Mm. And... If you do that from a for-profit, with a for-profit starting point, let's say, yeah. it's much easier to actually manage this legitimacy because people will, everything that you do on top of your business activities, like all the social things that you, that you do, will be evaluated as an add-on. Mm. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, right? Yeah. But simply put, that everything you do is like is just great. And they will be like, of course you have to make sure that you cover your costs, but you're also doing all these social things. So, you know, people are just easier to, to make happy as a for-profit, simply put. Wow, it's, it's a really, really interesting insight. So, I mean, with, with that global experience then and beyond that point, are there any other key challenges then for those social enterprises in developing economies? Yeah, I mean, sure, there are huge challenges, especially, I mean, what development theory currently emphasizes a lot is yeah. the importance of uh, institutions. So mm. basically that, you know, that you're able to operate in an environment where things are predictable, where contracts are being hold, you know, where people that break contracts are somehow being sued, etc., etc. So yep. these kind of things are just so important mm. for business environment to work and for businesses to thrive. And um, when these institutions are weak, which is often the case in developing and emerging economies, mm. it's a very, very tough yeah, environment for social enterprises or any businesses to operate. Yeah. So this is, I would say, the, the main challenge that I would emphasize. But... I mean, of course, it means that you have to somehow deal with unforeseen events, right? Yeah. Like you, you have to be very flexible. Um, you have to to deal with people that don't don't care about the the law or whatever. But what is also the case is that 
there's an increasing number of organizations that don't see these these happenings as challenges, but actually also as opportunities. Mm. Because if institutions are weak, you can also maybe shape them easier. Yeah. yeah. And and take the role of um, yeah we call it institutional entrepreneurs mm. basically. Something that came to mind there was also the fact to perhaps manipulate that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how have you seen the social enterprise sector transform then over the last five years or so? And where do you see the social enterprise sector heading into the future? So the social enterprise sector has certainly become much more institutionalized uh, when compared to five years ago. I mean, there's an increasing amount of funders focusing on social enterprise. There's like financing mechanisms that try to meet the needs of social enterprise. There's a big supportive ecosystem around the whole topic, like incubators, mm. blogs, idea or business model contests, etc., etc. Yeah. And in general, I think this trend will continue. But I also think that the boundaries, uh, I mean, I mean, the trend that the boundaries between the social, the nonprofit and the public sector will continue to blur. This mm. for sure is going to happen, yeah. in my opinion, just because, you know, Complex social issues require a cross-sectoral approach, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that there's an increasing number of, of um, people and organizations that um, that would agree with that. Mm. What I wonder is if this is going to be labeled social enterprise, like if yeah. this term is is going to be that important, or what my experience also in my in my PhD has shown is that um, it somehow leads to a lot of confusion and um, leads people to getting stuck on debates around what is a social enterprise is that really social etc mm. etc and yeah. i think these debates are on the one hand really important when it comes to you know uh, i don't know um designing uh, legal forms etc on on the policy level which is important mm-hmm. but um what is happening out there is just so much fuzzier than that and and that's good because it's innovative and it's not easy to put these things that happen in boxes yeah so um i think we're going to see yeah somehow a, a creative chaos let's say in yeah. my opinion well so in your report Aline, which was called taking the pulse you authored that with tim Weiss and lisa hanley you undertook a large study of investment in social enterprise, right? And and that was in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and you highlighted some really key recommendations there which came from that report. So could you please share what the outcomes were with the listeners? Yeah, sure. I was um, somehow bored during my PhD. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> somehow I had the crazy idea to uh, do a quantitative study on top because uh, we thought, you know, there's not much knowledge about um, social enterprises or social investors in developing and emerging economies. Mm. I mean, there are some studies out there. But all the studies that you would find are made by organizations that are trying that are trying to somehow make sure that their definition is going to be the one of social enterprise, yeah. right? And we wanted to have a more like a broader view on what is really happening and trying to really grasp this whole chaos, let's say. Mm. So what we did is we created um, two samples, basically one sample with uh, social enterprises. And one sample with social investors. And obviously the social enterprises were much, like many more than the social investors. Yeah. And all the social enterprises that we had in the sample were actually drawn from the portfolio of the social investors, right? Mm-hmm. So all the results could be also 
uh, triangulated between the two. Yeah. Yeah. So what was this all about? Um, the idea was to, uh, I mean, several things. First, we examined issues that social enterprises tackle and tried to further understand why they ventured in certain topics, but not in others. Yeah. And we found out that uh, social enterprises in, in those four countries, at least, are very dependent on bringing in a large portion of their income through the direct sale of products and services to end consumers. Like they were simply like selling their stuff to end consumers and that was the most important revenue stream for them. Mm, yeah. Like most important income stream, let's say. Yeah. Of course they received like different type of funding, mainly from uh, from the private sector. The public sector seemed to be very marginal or even sometimes an obstacle like some some social enterprises really told us that uh, they really had great problems with the with regulatory institutions um yeah. and the result of that is that social enterprises tend in those countries to operate in, in markets that offer easier circumstances and higher potential for profitability so they would mm. go for the quick wins right so yeah. for the for the low-hanging fruits, let's yeah, say, yeah. and um, that means that other important topics such as, I don't know, water or sanitation are rather being neglected because they mm. don't allow for an easy business model in a, yeah, without any substitution or anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Subsidization, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, I mean, you've been speaking a little bit about policy in many ways and, and institutions and how that can be weaker in those developing or emerging economies. So from a policy perspective then, what do you believe needs to be done by government to help foster and support an innovative social enterprise sector? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. I mean, um, based on or related to what I've just said, I think one of the most important things is really yeah, relates to funding and, and generating alternative sources of income. Like yeah long-term supply contracts with social enterprises to to really give them the opportunity to serve low-income people because, mm. I mean, where's the money supposed to come from, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's also other types of ways to, to organize that, especially through collaborations between different sectors. And here I think it's a crucial thing that um, governments encourage these types of um, collaboration through the right legal um, circumstances etc yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but then it, I mean the government is also you know kind of restricted in that and it's not like the government does one thing and then social enterprise is going to flourish like it's much more complex than that the reasons are so difficult to understand why in certain countries social enterprise actually flourishes and in others it doesn't yeah. um, so the recommendations are also really going towards other types of uh, actors that, mm. you know, I mean, providing the right type of financing is just so, so, so important for social enterprises. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to really always shift towards either either the rather for-profit side or the non-profit side and not, yeah. they, they won't be able to stay in their track, which is crucial for them to become durable organizations that, uh, that can achieve their goals. Mm. So, I mean, you've just spoken about some countries really flourishing when it comes to the social enterprise sector. So, are there any countries then that you believe are really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation or social enterprise? And what do you think then we can learn from those countries uh, that other governments could then perhaps adopt? 
I'm always talking about developing and emerging economies because that's my focus. Yeah. Um, but I, I think one country that has really, really impressed me was Kenya mm. because there's just so much going on there, especially like digital business models yeah. in, in the social enterprise sector are just, I mean, fascinating there. Mm. It was actually not a real consequence of a policy uh, change or anything. One thing that has really like helped Kenya to to become such an innovative hub, let's say, was that I don't know if you've heard about M-Pesa. M-Pesa yeah. is basically a money transfer system uh, where people can yeah, transfer money through their mobile phones. Yep, yep. And that has helped like millions of people to somehow get access to many, many services, right? Mm. right? Before that, they were just not able to pay yeah. any um, electricity bill or whatever. And now yeah. they're connected to the grid. They can do all these things. Uh, and this is like an infrastructural fundament on which so many other innovations have built upon. And it was not like the government that has said, okay, we're going to do that. And uh, and then it will happen. Yeah. But there was somehow a gap in the, in the legal framework, let's say, because in Germany you would not be able to do that because the banks and, and all kinds of financial institutions are lobbying against it mm. and the, is not able to somehow, it would, it would be prohibited simply, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just not that easy. And there, so it's again an innovation that somehow happened because of an institutional void, right? Like an institutional gap, if yeah. you want. And so it's not, yeah, it's hard for me to say governments should do this and that because I find it's so complex what the reasons are that yeah, social yeah. innovation nourish. Mm, very, very interesting. Before you spoke a little bit about water projects, for example, perhaps being ignored because of uh, more viable business models uh, in other sectors. So are there any particular environmental or social problems that you believe really need to be urgently tackled with new social enterprise initiatives? Yeah, I mean, there's thousands of yeah. them, obviously. One thing that really keeps me, yeah, keeps agonizing me is, is the topic of conscious consumption and global inequalities, mm. let's say. I really wonder myself, like, wonder why is it so difficult to turn people into conscious consumers and mm. I don't want to blame anyone I can just uh, take myself as an example yeah, I mean yeah. I really really care about this planet and about my human fellows on this planet but mm. um, still I know that many of the things that I buy or consume are having negative impacts mm. and there's many factors that come into play here like I mean there's the lack of transparency in global supply chains yeah. um, complex causal relationships like Solving one social problem might actually uh, create another one, etc. Yeah. Or simply the laziness of people, right? Mm. <laughs> so it's a huge, huge topic, but I think it is so important to develop a solution that easily informs people and helps them to make better uh, consumption decisions in the very moment that they actually have to make them, ideally. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. So... Speaking about some inspiring projects or initiatives then, have you come across any recently which are really creating some fantastic positive social change? Oh, definitely. I mean, again, I can maybe give some examples from from Kenya. I think there's one which is called Ch Changamka. Yep. So that's a provider of um, a micro health insurance mm -hmm. for six critical illnesses for Kenyan low-income families. And um, 
this micro-insurance model actually uses um, mobile phone technology mm. to allow anyone with a mobile phone to accumulate savings yeah. and uh, cover the cost of healthcare. So it drastically lowers the cost of health insurance, reduces mm. administrative costs, and yeah, it just makes medical treatment accessible to those who could not previously afford it. And that's that's one interesting part. But the other interesting thing is that Changamka is also channeling funding from different sources, yeah. um, including public, private, and, and third sector payment. And through that, it's designed to be a self-sustainable and a durable insurance for low-income people. And I think that's really an innovation. Mm. And it's very promising and hopefully will be replicated. Yeah, fantastic. And and from a local perspective, Aline, are there any other really interesting initiatives? Yeah, there's um, there's one organization which is called um, Chiron University uh, here in Germany. It's um, a provider of open higher education for refugees mm. and i think that's also a, like a model that is so inspiring that it should be replicated all around the world yeah like, so what chiron does is basically it enables access to higher education and yeah learning for refugees through digital solutions so mm. the idea is that refugees who are I don't know, maybe uh, waiting for their paperwork to get processed and hopefully um, receive a permission to, to stay in the country and study in Germany. Yeah. Actually already start with their studies free of charge mm. through Chiron's digital educational program. So they're not losing their time. And then the organization has now already a couple of partnerships, but is obviously trying to get more with universities who have agreed to accept those students and recognize what they have already learned through Chiron. Mm. Um, so, and then, you know, that, that they don't have to start from scratch once that they're formally allowed to get enrolled at the universities. Yeah, fantastic. And it's a wonderful concept. It sounds like it's creating some really great benefit for that community. Yeah, Thanks. it's quite popular here in Germany, but I think it should be around the world. <laughs> mm. Excellent. So to finish off, Aline, are there any really inspiring books that you'd recommend to the listeners? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so maybe uh, two books. One is called Poor Economics from Banerjee and Duflo. So uh -huh. this is an academic book, um, but it's very well readable. Mm. And what it does is it really changes the way we have thought about poverty so far because mm. it's it takes on a micro perspective on the way poor people make decisions like it shows why it is so tough to be poor and why it is so hard to move out of poverty but it doesn't do that from a perspective from above yeah. like because the way we looked at poverty is from above without getting our hands dirty most of the time mm. for the last decades and now what they did is really they went into communities they talked with people they met made some yeah, some, some tests, etc., to really find out what is it that yeah leads these people to make the decisions that they do. And this is so interesting mm. because really, yeah, start to understand the way they think. And this is just crucial. And the second book, which um, I haven't read entirely yet, but I think it is also really important because it changes the way we think about the developing world. It's called, if you want to call it like that, yeah. it's called Dig Digital Kenya. And it's actually edited by my former colleague, Tim Weiss. Um, and it features a bunch of stories and interviews with entrepreneurs and investors from the ICT sector in Kenya. Mm. And it's what it means to be an entrepreneur in a country like Kenya and what the opportunities are for the country. Mm. But most importantly, it also contributes to changing the way we 
we see these types of countries because you know if we think about Africa we like in our head you can see like pictures of you know small children with um, big bellies being hungry etc and yeah. whatever but there's just a very very different side and it's very innovative and there's so much happening that is so inspiring fantastic Aline, you've shared some really, really generous insights today. So thanks so much for doing that and for the time. Yeah, well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below. And remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page, and Twitter.